Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today I've caught Gillian Wrightford, the founder of Ad Therapy, a management, skills development and communication consultancy. Gillian is on a mission to rid the world of bad ads using her simple equation, better skills equals better relationships equals better results. An appointed industry agony aunt, she advocates for education, creativity and a strong dosage of Binet and Field to help clients and agencies get the best out of each other. Gillian says, creative excellence operates on the gift-giving theory, which is that we are gifting our consumers with something interesting, something entertaining, something valuable. And in return, they are gifting us with their attention, their money or their behaviour change. So instead of worrying about our incentives or our remunerations, maybe what we should all be doing is considering our mutual consumer and gifting them with creative excellence. Welcome to the show, Gillian. Thank you, Charles. That was a really good introduction. Downhill from here. (laughs) (laughs) Right, seven quick fire questions, Gillian. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Cape Town or Johannesburg? Ooh, Cape Town. Right, films now. Invictus or Searching for Sugar Man? Searching for Sugar Man. Better relationships or better results? Mm, better results. Nando's or Burger King? Nando's. Stick or twist? Mm, pass. <laughs> <laughs> Got you. <laughs> Bill Burnback or Bill Tong? Bill Tong. <laughs> I can't live without it. <laughs> so, Gillian, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. How did your career start, Gillian? And before you answer, I do have a great quote here from you, which is, you swore you would never work in advertising if it was the last job on earth. True. It's absolutely true. I um, studied a a business science degree in marketing at the University of Cape Town when I finished school. And I absolutely loved the idea of marketing. I didn't know what it was initially because I didn't know what to study. And I went to go and do some aptitude tests. And I had sort of equal art and science abilities. And this clever person said, you should do marketing. And I went home and looked in a dictionary and was like, oh, okay, that sounds fine. So I did that. And I, towards the end of my my degree, I just thought I would never work in advertising. Honestly, if it was the last job on earth, because I just thought it was frivolous and pointless. And um, I wanted to save the world. And, and yeah, so that didn't work out. But my, I mean, I did lots of strange jobs. I worked really right through school. I played guitar, I sang in restaurants, I waitressed, I sold dodgy cutlery sets um, in funny little (laughs) suitcases. So I was kind of always 
working, I think mainly because my father and I didn't really get on well and I I wanted to have my own independence. But when I left university, I, I had a very short-lived stint at uh, working for Total, the oil company, which was, uh, I don't think they knew why they hired me. So I just sat in an office and read the French newspaper for a couple of weeks and then I left. And then I was offered a job at a, a marketing strategy company and it was really a great job it was uh, we were getting really big complex briefs and I learned an enormous amount but I became quite frustrated because there was no implementation and I realized that a lot of the briefs we were getting were really to solve scores or answer internal political battles and I kind of wanted to know whether what we were suggesting would actually work so I started thinking that I, I wanted to do something where we put it into practice. We actually executed the plan. And then I had a weird kind of vision of working in a house with cats. I just thought that was important at that moment in my life. And lo and behold, I got a call from a recruitment company who said there was a job that sort of suited my profile. And I went for the interview and it was a small design agency come strategy company in a house with cats ah, okay there we go <laughs> so I just took the job and it was really a, a, a brilliant uh, introduction we did a lot of strategy work and we had a design studio we did a lot of below the line work we did a lot of direct marketing it was very kind of hands-on work which was fascinating and while I was there we had a very good freelance copywriter who we eventually decided to start an agency with. And we started an agency called the Jupiter Drawing Room, which is a which went on to become a one, one of South Africa's big agencies and very good creative agencies. And that's kind of how I got into advertising. It sort of found me. I didn't find it. You said it was a bit more hands-on mm. when you went to a smaller agency. Yeah. Was that due to the scale, do you think? Yeah, and it's it's an interesting question because it's something, you know, I, I've done a lot of lecturing and my students always say to me, you know, should I try and work in a small agency first or a big agency first? And I found working in a small agency just so liberating because you just do a bit of everything and you, you really do roll your sleeves up and, and you are a master of what, what is it? A, you know, you're kind of a master of nothing, but, a, but required to know everything. And I found that that was just a phenomenal way to, to learn um, and, to, and to learn quickly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. In, in fact, I often recommend the same, not just because I work in a small independent agency. It's a bit more like a foundation course mm. where you are exposed to many different types of creative practices. Mm. You do have sight, even if you're not involved in everything, you typically have sight of a lot mm. more. Yeah, I mean, I think everything from understanding production or, you know, absolutely everything that you would possibly be a little bit distance from in a bigger agency. And I know that, you know, in, in many big agencies, you've got to do your time at a particular level before you are deemed ready to go to the next level. And it's, it's obviously just not like that because there are no levels in a small agency. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it was a great start for me, really, really um, useful. And then how did you end up setting up ad therapy? So I... I from that house with cats um, and Jupiter drawing room. We I then started. A, I, I went to a couple of other agencies, and then started my own agency back with Jupiter, um, which became the 
I don't know if you remember DMBMB, Darcy. Yes. We became the Darcy agency in South Africa. Ran that for a bit. Then I joined Low, the Low company in South Africa, which had just taken over Lintas globally. So I joined them. It was called Low Bull Calvert Pace at the time. And I ran that business for seven years. And my partner, Matthew Bull, had gone over to London and New York and he came back and he sort of, we both had the same job, which was awkward. But I then decided to leave and I had a little bit of time to think about what I wanted to do. And I didn't just want to go back into another agency. And I sat watching TV one night and I watched three bad ads in a row and I just thought, isn't it amazing how so many clever people sit around the table and, and there's so much money involved and it takes so long and yet so much of what comes out of the creative process is so mediocre. And I thought that's what I want to do. I want to actually help them, help agencies and marketers work better together to make better work because I genuinely absolutely believe that it is more effective. So, so the idea of ad therapy was born. It was like an aha eureka moment. And in terms of, of, of helping people unblock whatever was causing the relationship not to create the, the right kind of work. Has that dynamic between agency and client always been something you've been interested in? Uh, not, not really. I think that I was, I was always someone that was incredibly honest with my clients. And I think, you know, I, I, I was occasionally criticized for being too honest with them sometimes because I really did believe that we were a partnership and we were as strong as we were you know we were stronger together than we were as individual parts and so I think that was something that I took into the business the sort of the honesty because because I am very honest about these these um what's going wrong but I think what I you know one of my contemporaries said uh, asked me a couple of years after I'd started, you know, what, what I'd learned, uh, what I knew then that I didn't know when I was in the business. And I think what I have been exposed to more than I realized at the time was just how hard it is on the marketer's side, just how much pressure they're under, how much, how tough their world is. And that's enabled me to kind of say to agencies, well, here's how you can help them. Uh, and to say to marketers, here's how agencies can actually help you navigate some of the, the stresses that you have to deal with every day. Yeah, I really like that. And I'll tell you why. It's because I think there's too often blame and, and finger pointing in this industry, mm. uh, which is, you know, it's too easy to do and, and quite frankly, just brings the mood down. And I you know I've done it as much as anyone else, but where you blame a client or you blame an agency for the shit ad you've just seen, but actually, mm-hmm. and maybe it's an intentional reframing it as therapy maybe you're accepting that both sides actually want the best thing, but something in the relationship is, is affecting the output and the output is, isn't is where either side wants it to be. Absolutely. And, this, and that, that was my starting point was that, you know, no one goes into that first briefing meeting saying, let's make the most mediocre work that we can, that no one will, will pay any attention to and that we'll all feel terrible about. No one does that. Everyone goes in with a no. sense of optimism. There's great, you know, obviously agency people are incredibly optimistic, you know. And so so, so how does that then then land up where it does. And I do I do these creative fitness workshops. And one of them where, where I work with marketers and I help them understand the inputs of creativity and how to how to brief it, how to evaluate it, how to get it. And um, one of the exercises I do is I ask them to bring in 
some advertising that they've seen that they think is really great. And I'm blown away by what they bring in. Absolutely phenomenal, creative pieces of work. And we put them up around the room and we talk about them. We say, what makes them great? And they tell me and they're amazing. And then I say, does your advertising look like this? And they all laugh. And I say, well, why not? And then we have that discussion. If you believe this is great, this stopped you in your tracks. And you can tell me why it's great. Why can't you make work like that? That's great. I love that exercise. We like to do an exercise sometimes with clients where we strip their uh, advertising or communication and we just grab copy from from various mm-hmm. areas of their, their kind of comms part of their marketing. And yeah. we stick it up on the wall alongside the, the full competitive set and ask them which one they are. And because they're often very keen to explain that they're different. But actually, when you strip away the logo and any other brand codes and just look at what they're saying to the market, often they look and sound just like the, the exactly the same. they say they're better yeah. than. Yeah, yeah. So why is so much creative work mediocre? I, I, I honestly think a lot of it goes back to, to the skills sets in terms of, you know, I had, a, I had a great client once at Unilever and we were presenting some work to him and he said, he said how, how many pieces of work do you evaluate a year? And I said, oh, I don't know, hundreds and he said, why? And I said, well, for everything we bring you, we've probably thrown out 40 ideas. Uh, we're looking at your competitors. We're looking at our competitors. We're looking at what's happening globally. We're looking at what's happening when we drive down the road. We are filtering and processing all the time. And he said, you know how many I evaluate a year? And I said, no, he said, the three you put in front of me. And he said, I just, and, and he was honest enough to say, I honestly don't have the skills. This is from Unilever. I don't have the skills to tell you whether this is good or not. So I think the very basic understanding of what good is and of why you want it and why you need it. I mean, I just talk about it as being a business imperative. I think if you're a marketer and you're not getting great work, you're not doing your job properly. So it's that basic understanding of what good looks like and then why it is absolutely essential that you get it, and then how you get it, and the skills involved in unpacking, you know, how you how you brief, how you evaluate, how you give feedback, and and I think that that's why it is mediocre because it's the, the majority of of people who are in that decision making role have not learned those skills. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really refreshing to hear that example from Unilever. Mm. No doubt you're familiar with it, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners. I know that the likes of Dave Trott and Richard Shotton have shared this a few times. Is that Mm. agreement, they call it their advertising philosophy, between Avis and and DDB, essentially setting out that, that Avis will never know as much about advertising as DDB. And the flip being true as well. And it's almost a bit like a prenup. Yeah, and that, that, that was from the 60s, you know, that, that particular example. So, I mean, one, one, of the, one of the examples I loved, and I, I really can't remember where I heard it, but I think it was Bill Berndach and VW back, you know, in, when, when they were sort of getting together. And the VW client, I think Bill Berndach said, if we take on this business, when we show you an ad, we we wanted to run exactly the way we show it to you. And the VW client turned around and said, well, that's fine, but then it better be 100% right. 
And Bill Birnbach wrote about the fact that that actually kind of reframed it for him. And he went back feeling a bit nervous yeah. back to the agency saying, well, we've really got to get this 100% right. And, um, and I think that's a good discipline for agencies too, is, you know, making sure that what you are putting in front of the client is really, if it, if it had to run as it is, is it, exact, is it the best that it can be? Um, so it works both ways. And do you typically spend more time with the marketer or the agency? It kind of differs. So I, I have different aspects of the business. So I do, I do what I call, uh, I used to call them relationship interventions until someone said that's what you do with alcoholics. Um, <laughs> the family intervention. But um, so I now call them partnership alignments. I think that's nicer. And when I do those, I spend time with, with both sides and I spend time individually with people and that is the therapy. I, 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 get, I hear a lot of stuff. And then I kind of come back together to help them get back on track. So, so on that side, it's both. On the training side, I tend to do, I would say, 70% with marketers um, and 30% with agencies. I think agencies generally tend to be a bit cash-strapped when it comes to training. And the marketers are the ones with they're really feeling the pinch. They are, fe- they, they are under pressure. They're in a massive pressure internally. They are not respected internally. And so they know that this is an area they need to get better at. So there's, there's, a, there's a big demand for that. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned um, your equation, the, the skills, relationships and results. Are they equally weighted, would you say? It's an interesting question because, you know, there are lots of companies that do relationship audits and there are these checklists and tick boxes and, you know, you, you have your, your mid-year appraisal and your annual appraisal. And my perspective is those are great and I, I often use them I use them as starting points as a, a kind of a benchmark of where the relationship might be at that point but for me it's not about a relationship for a relationship's sake I think you can have a great relationship and still do terrible work <laughs> you know you can you can go on holiday with each other you can you can you can really be great friends but if the relationship is not generating the quality of creative product that is going to get you better results then I don't really it's I don't really see the point of it so so for me it is results driven it's about it's about being more effective uh, which is why I think it's a business imperative and then it's 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 anchoring the relationship in the skills that's going to get you the results so I'm quite I'm quite sort of firm on the fact that that the relationship is a means to an end yeah absolutely but the, I'm interested about the 70%, 30% split in terms of the skills focus. And you also said that marketers are uh, perhaps not respected internally. I, I'd wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I'd equally say that agencies aren't respected. I think maybe that, broadly speaking, the whole practice of marketing isn't respected. And I think you've referred to it as uh, it's seen as the colouring in department. I've heard other people say the same thing. Do you think the work that you do tackles that problem head on and enables marketers and agencies to build that respect that may be lacking yeah I, I mean one of the one of the courses that I run which actually I, it gets fantastic results and it's always gets 
has a lot of aha moments at the end is I run a program called Marketing for Non-Marketers. And in that one, I bring in people that are peripheral to the marketing department. And it could be people in legal, could be people in sales, could be people in factory, could be in people in HR. And they all come in and it's a bit of a laugh because marketing, you know, they are the people, as you say, coloring in department and they're a bit, you know, they're a bit mad. And they all come in and they sit there and they, they, they're kind of a bit embarrassed about why they're even there. And by the time I finish with them two days later, they're sitting back going, wow, I didn't realize that marketing was so robust. I didn't realize that there were these processes that and I didn't realize how much went into what I see and now I know what I can do what I can do to help them and I know what they can give me so there's a whole kind of awakening of what marketing actually does yeah so I do tackle that head-on and I also do tackle account management and I I watched that lovely I don't know if you saw it Giles uh, Nick Ellis's talk at Z-Melt. He's yes, on client partnerships. On client partnerships. And he spoke about client, client service um, and he called them the unsung heroes of creativity. And I think that, um, so I run an account leadership program because for me, it's not about account management. It's actually about leading, leading the business. And I think that a lot of the problems in relationships are, I once saw it expressed as a bow tie. And in the middle of the bow tie, you've got your sort of, your, your, your two, your two, partners in the business and very often they're at middle management or sometimes even lower than middle management you know sort of brand management reasonably junior account management person and they're actually managing the whole relationship and I think that so I I spend quite a lot of time trying to upskill and push the strategic understanding of the account management role because I think that's where a lot of the, the wheel spin takes place and a lot of the lack of proactivity, lack of business understanding, lack of strategic understanding. I always say to account management people, strategy is not a person. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's a way of thinking. Because you hear people saying, oh, just, let's just get strategy in the meeting or let's just get, you know, has strategy signed off the brief? Well, ah, you're also strategic, you know can be <laughs> yeah 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 totally so I do I do spend quite a lot of time there I think the disconnect is still possibly really understanding the commercial side of the business um, and that's something that I do try and deal with as well in some of the workshops yeah it's funny there's two points there I'd like to um, pick up one Nick Ellis as we record this he will be the episode that is released just before your one and we, oh, and we go into detail about client partnerships so I'm, I'm really pleased you brought that up I think very highly of Nick he's mm. great and I, and I loved his talk and I think the points he's making in that are just perfect I loved it just reframing it's it's almost embarrassing in a way that as an industry we haven't implemented something like that previously mm. and reframed the account management teams just the semantics around it as a partnership or something akin to that and your uh, point around the commercials equally is is so valid. Having a better grasp of the of the, the commercial impacts and significance of a marketing role is so vital because then it gives you the right language to discuss the business in the boardroom and those the relevant corridors and offices. But also you can justify your value and your worth. And I read a 
worrying statistic that came out, I think it was on Friday, the B2B Institute, mm. aka LinkedIn released. And the stat, I, could, I might be taking this slightly out of context, but it's, it's worrying nonetheless, is that uh, I think it was only 4% of B2B marketers measure beyond six months in terms of their campaign effectiveness. Wow. And that, that's quite... It's quite alarming. It's not a surprise, but it's quite alarming. I think I did see that. But, but you know, the other thing that I've, I realized, and it was another sort of one of those so obvious but incredible ahas, was that agencies are B2B businesses. And, and they're in a B2B relationship with their clients, and yet they don't function like B2B businesses. They, they kind of, they focus on the consumer that they're talking to on behalf of the client but they they're missing i think a lot of the basic practices of good b2b yeah absolutely yeah so it was um i remember thinking gosh i never thought about that when i was running an, an agency and you know just the, the basic the basic buying behavior in b2b if you think about it it's exactly what happens uh between an agency and and a marketer and i'm not sure that they've really grasped that and i think that I think that that's where, like, I'll, I'll often have account management people will say to me, you know, what, what questions should I ask in a brief? And, you know, do you have a list of questions that I should ask? <laughs> I go, well, I can help you with a list of questions, but it's also just a way of thinking, you know, and, and, and being curious, but also knowing the type of questions that will lead you to writing a better brief, for example. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Can we talk about creativity and uh, and risk? There's a wonderful talk you gave uh, last year, Ned Nedbank. Yes, is that right? Yeah, and and you you quote the great Frank Lowe and say it's because things are tough that people aren't taking risks, and it's because people aren't taking risks that things are tough. Yeah, can you elaborate a bit more on that because it's a great point? Well, I think that. And Fernando Machado talks a lot about this, about just how hard it is to take risks. Uh, he tweeted something today and he just said, you know, a lot of people just think all we do at Burger King is be cool, when in actual fact a lot of it is hard grind and it's not easy doing great work. And I think that I think a lot of there's a there's a there's a there's a lack of understanding about the power of creativity. And so there's a there's a tendency to be safe and to to pull back from it. And and that's what that's what what he's saying about not taking risks. There's there's a there's a need also to please the C-suite who doesn't have any understanding. And it is changing. I do think it is changing. But I do think that C-suite is starting to say, what is all this creativity stuff that people are talking about and why aren't we getting it more? Uh, so I think that that's actually exciting. But I think it's just it's just fear and it's about keeping a job. I think Rory Sutherland had, had a little grid that I saw the other day. You know, if you, if you just do your job, you're unlikely to be fired. Whereas if you take a risk and maybe it doesn't work, well, then you might lose your job. So people, people like to sort of stay in that sort of safe ground. And I think what agencies maybe could do more of is to help the client mitigate the risk in terms of it feels risky, but here's actually why it's not. Yeah, because the, <clears throat> the client needs that information, not only for their own uh, decision-making process, but the decision-making process that is, is um, part of the chain they 
inhabit in their business because it's not as simple as selling it to your immediate client they yeah. then have to sell it internally too don't they and that's another area I think agencies um, yeah. easily miss and there's you know there's risk there's risk mitigation in every other area of their business so there are there are people that that's their whole job is looking at risk and 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 trying to deal with it and and I'm not sure we help them we help them mitigate the creative risk enough. One of my favorite charts also was from James Herman's book, The Case for Creativity, and I think it was a Peter Field chart, and it just showed that that more effective campaigns are more predictable in their 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 success. And, and the point of the chart was actually that the risky campaigns are actually the least creative ones. So we associate creative with risk, but actually it's boring that's risky. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. Doing the safe ad that looks like everyone else in the, yeah. in the, in the industry. What's the point of all that? <laughs> and do, do you get to enjoy the implementation of the work you do so when you have I don't I, I'm trying to find the right words that don't make it sound like your clients sit on Shay's longs and you uh are you still involved at the stage where you can see the relationship or the skills relationship and therefore the results improve? Yeah, yeah. Or have you had to take a step back at that stage? Do you still get that nice involvement? I see it either actually in the marketplace and I can see an improvement and I go, oh, yay. Or I I, I get a lot of anecdotal p- feedback from either um, agencies or production houses or somebody who's been working with a client and then this a change has happened. and. And they tell me about the change. And then I say, oh, that's interesting, because that was just after I'd done this. And they said, no, it's chalk and cheese. Absolutely. And I can I can see the improvement in the work. I don't always listen, obviously. But um, <laughs> the ones that do, I can. And, I, and it's really just so exciting. So a lot of them I, I keep, I have long-term relationships with. And they'll phone me because because we get quite close. They'll phone me about all sorts of things, and they'll ask me to maybe take a look at a brief that they're going to put in, or or try and understand why a particular campaign didn't work, um, and then I can help them with that. So I do stay quite close. I don't get that involved in the implementation of it because unless they ask me to. That's nice, actually. I, I like the idea of it not being just a defined role, and then you step away. It's almost a bit more in in line with marketing and strategy I suppose itself where it is continuous yeah and I think that um I I built a thing called the business marketing academy which is really just um it's a way of helping marketers build in-house academies to upskill so I've got about 100 modules where I've gone to people that I think are exceptional uh practitioners that are exceptional and I've got them to produce a whether it's on digital or whether it's on media or whatever it is and, and what I always say to, to the, the marketers that we're working with is that you've got the benefit of having somebody in the room doing some training for you, but they also are a highly skilled practitioner. So while we're training, we can also consult at the same time in the room. And so we make those sessions incredibly focused around their business and their challenges, and they bring work in and we can help them solve them in, in the room, which is a really fun and valuable way to to do training I think that's amazing it sounds like you've got the best of of all worlds at the moment Gillian (laughs) yeah (laughs) I do I do all the fun stuff yeah no it sounds great and um 
so so that eureka moment back in 2007 that's that's really served served you well have you got any any future plans to tweak the model even further i mean i, I don't i don't think you could you could you could do any more in terms of you've got the marketing academy i think up until recently am i right you were lecturing at the university of cape town which you did for a long time and obviously your ad therapy keeps you very busy yeah it does and i think that i mean one of the things that i started doing probably about a year ago is actually working with a creative partner or with a group of creatives to to help develop big creative strategic platforms just because i think that there's there's uh, I think a lot of agencies, or particularly in South Africa, we've got we've had quite a brain drain in terms of senior creative talent and strategy talent. So, so I do I do do some of that work, which is kind of hand is helping craft a big idea and then handing it over. And then I think my next what I'm focusing on at the moment now is I've been doing a lot of consulting uh, on ways of working, which has been great. But again, it's ways of working. It's not so much from a process uh, efficiency point of view. It's from a how do we how do we change the way that we work to get better quality at the end. So I've been doing that quite a bit, and that's work that I really love doing. And then I want to focus a little bit more on building account leadership. I really feel that it's an, as you said earlier, um, it, it's an under recognized and an underserved critical pivot in the in the partnership. And I always thought it was amazing that Frank Lowe was given, I think it was by DNAD, he was given an honorary, you know, Lifetime Achievement Award as, as a person in uh, in client service or account management, whatever you call it. And I think, how do we celebrate those people and the role they play more? How do we build them more? And um, that's, what I, that's what I've been working on a little bit this, this year and I want to do a little bit more of. That's great to know and great to hear because you're right. It's right at the heart of that bow tie uh, metaphor you used earlier, isn't it? And 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 sadly, I know a lot of agencies struggle to justify the investment, or even if you see it as a line item on an estimate. I know that the thinking differs between all agencies as to whether it's a separate line item. Do you just do they get swallowed in as another part of a different cost and it's it's wrong it's it's so clearly wrong given the value that they represent mm. and I think I think the problem is they've become pro- project managers there's nothing wrong with being a project manager but I think that the the sort of this holistic role of that client partner is something that really adds a huge amount of value and given that the client that they're dealing with is probably also feeling a little bit insecure and and actually really needs a strong partner um it's something that i i just have yeah it's something that really i i feel needs to be pushed a bit further yeah very good i've got a couple of listener questions for you Gillian. okay good so asking the general public for their opinion be it on brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger um, but we've got two to put to you, Gillian. So James is question one, and he says, I understand you lectured on marketing at the University of Cape Town for over a decade. What was the most important message you would try to get across to every student? That's a great question. I think the most important message, and I, I, I wrote it in my course profile, and I said it on my first intro lecture, and I banged the drum right through my course, was <laughs> that creativity is a strategic business tool. 
and it is a way of gaining competitive advantage. And I wanted them to understand that that is that's what we were aiming for, and that's why we were aiming for it. And and the course the course that I ran was a postgrad course. I ran a, a undergrad course as well for a while, but then I moved into a postgrad course. So what was really interesting was that the people that were in the room were from a from a from all over. They were engineers. They were they were food people. They were all sorts of people, and they came from such varying backgrounds. And so I just thought, I've got this opportunity to plant the seed, and these people are going to go into business and they're going to go somewhere and I always made sure I found out where the finance students were as well because I wanted to talk to them specifically um, so that they would have this little seed in their minds that when they went forward they, it was something they realized it was actually a strategic advantage if they did it properly. Yeah we all need to plant those seeds it's partly why we started Call to Action to be honest and um, no you're absolutely right. With the with with finance folk were they receptive to hearing that message? They kind of laughed nervously on lecture one, and then and then I'll never forget. Actually, one of them offered to walk me to my car one day, and um, he said he was very tall, a guy Lebo, and he he said, "I want to tell you, it's like a light's gone on in my world." And I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Well, you know, if I if I go into a, a shop and I want to buy a cold drink, I don't just buy a cold drink." <laughs> he said, "I stand in front of the fridge and I look at." And I, I, I think about choices. I think about the buying decision process. You know, he said, I never thought about all of this before. And he, 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 he found it so fascinating about behavior change, about, you know, about, about all the other stuff that we do that is not always visible. And I just loved that. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's great that you got that feedback as well. Question two is from Clara, and she says, I loved your isolated talk, the cracks in things let the light shine in. I'm not doing it any justice in this question, but I was intrigued when you mentioned getting advice from an astrologist after leaving (laughs) your job in 2006. What got you into astrology, and do you still follow it? Uh, That's such a great question. I've always followed it, sort of you know, and and I'm definitely not an expert in it. But at that point in time, my brother was going through a whole bunch of stuff and I bought him an astrology appointment as his birthday present. And he came out being a skeptic and he came out just going, oh my word. It's like, I understand. So I thought, well, I I want it too. And I went there and, and it was just so, so interesting because it, it kind of helped make sense of, you know, one of the things he said was you, you need to learn to let go of status, which was really interesting for me. And he kind of spoke about the fact that where the planets were at that moment in time, it was going to blow up something. And if something wasn't working, it was going to blow it up anyway. And so that's what happened. It did blow up my career at that point, but it did open up another and so much more for me. But yeah, so I don't, it's not something I do all the time, but I do find it quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't doubt that at all. I have a couple of family members who are probably exactly in the same position. It was helpful. It was really helpful, actually. It really helped me kind of just take a step back and go, okay, so that's just the way it is. What are we doing next? Yeah, yeah. Well, anything that helps you do that can't be bad. Um, the final part of the interview then, Gillian, is our four pertinent 
poses that we put to all of our guests, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? So I think it's something actually that I'm still learning and people who know me well will probably find this uh, surprising because I'm not the shy retiring type. But I would, my advice I would give my younger self is say what's in your head. When you're in a meeting and you have something to say, actually just say it. Because because so often, you know, you, you have this thing and you think, oh, I can't say that. That sounds stupid. Or uh, I might be wrong, so I better not say that. Just say it. Just say it. It's probably interesting and it's going to move the conversation on. Just say it. Spit it out. So that would be one thing. The, the other thing that I would say, and it was something that I realized, and I, I think it might be more of a woman kind of problem in business, is is don't take on too much. Don't try and fix things. Don't try and say, don't worry, I'll do it. Because I think I think I tended to go, oh, it doesn't matter that there's no MD in that office. I'll just look after it while I'm also looking after this and running the group. And in the end, it becomes quite uh, self-defeating. And I think sort of stick to your stick to your lane and say no more often. On your first point, I find that often everyone else has the same thing in their head or a few other people do, but they're all too scared to say it. Exactly. So just say it. Just say it. Yeah. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? It would be the divide between account management and creative. I think it's not constructive. I, th- I think that the, the internal divides within the, the agency walls are not helpful. How you do that, I don't know. That's my next but, question. Um, I, I, went to a, I went to a breakfast once. It was a creative uh, awards breakfast. And I think there was someone from Mother speaking. I don't remember who it was. And he stood up and said something about they don't have client service, account management, whatever. And he said, we don't have those people. And the whole room erupted in applause. And I looked around. I was so furious. But I looked around and I thought that's such a, a, a visceral thing that all of these creative people were like, yes, you don't have those irritating people. And I, I do think that that's an, an area. And I think that clients can sniff out that dissension as well. I think that um, very often work reaches a client that is not, they can see there's not agreement and alignment in the room and and it it makes them distrust the whole process, that makes them distrust the team. So I would, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd find a way to make account management and creative play far closer together and and really, really help each other and work, work better together other than, you know, what they currently are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's too easy for um, both sides to become a bit too precious and protective over their side if that divide exists. And then it's just a recipe for disaster, isn't it? It is. And it's totally unconstructive. But can I can I ban another thing? Go on then. I want to banish another thing. And that is we too much work. We are simply just filling. And I think Sir John Hegarty called it digital landfill. I just think we, we, we should just slow down. We should just... I had a client the other day that was putting in 400 briefs a month. Oh, my God. To their agency. The agency was dying. You know, people were, you know, dying in the trenches. And I said, why do you need 400 briefs? Wow. And and at the end of the day, they probably needed like eight 
you know? What are we doing with all of this stuff? Where is it going? Who's seeing it? Do we need it? Let's let's make what we do count and, and do it properly. And and um, I just think this fire hose of always on content is just madness. Yeah, I'm with you there. A hundred percent. I was going to say a thousand percent. Idiot. <laughs> I no. I, I'm so with you there. I wonder how does that even happen. I mean, are they measuring the quantity of briefs of some sort of gauge or measure of marketing effectiveness? It's mad, isn't it? And as you say, the content kind of obsession is unhealthy and and yeah, flawed in so many ways. We we couldn't do it justice. Yeah, and you know, a lot of what I talk about when I talk to marketers is is the impact. Uh, financially, you know, this stuff costs money and yet it really isn't generating enough. And and on the flip side, it's actually really damaging agencies' profitability in many instances. And it's 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 wearing people out. I mean, I I was with a client who has a social media team and they they beautifully executed Instagram promotions and things like that. And they were they they told me they got five responses. On average, like, what's the point? Yeah, just s- wow. save the money and uh, I don't know, do something more interesting with it. But also, everybody needs breathing room. You need you need time to breathe. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Number three, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? I mean, I I did laugh. I don't know if you saw it a few years ago. I think it was um, BBH did a World Cup of of books. I did, yes. I absolutely love that, and I think I'd read every single one of them. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think Richard Shotton won that, didn't he? Did, he did. Richard the Tr- yeah, Trace I remember Fact- that. Yeah. yeah, the Trace Factory won that. So, uh, so that would definitely be on my list. I, I, I like the one book that really fascinated me when I read, and I, I wished I'd read it when I was in the business, was the book called Drive by um, Daniel Pink about uh, factors of motivation. And and the reason I loved it so much is that it goes to motivating staff, people that work for in the creative industry. And, and creative industry would also go to being the marketers too. And he talks about the three factors being autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And purpose not in the... The abused sense we abuse it in marketing. But, yeah, but yeah. you know why you get up in the morning and what you go to work for. And And... I just remember reading it thinking I wish I'd read this when I was actually running an agency because it just gave such insight into into how to motivate people in in an in an industry which is quite relentless in many ways and quite emotionally draining how do you how do you motivate beyond uh, beyond money so I love that drive was really great um Madison Avenue manslaughter I think is an absolute must read for anybody by Michael Farmer and and he talks about the impact of the the massive increase in volume and workload on agencies' pro- productivity and just how the model just basically is completely uh, broken. But it's a really really brilliant book um, and and very well written. And then there's just so many. Obviously, delusions of grandeur, brilliant. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> thinking fast and slow. Uh, I I like some of Dave Trott's books. I love the idea of predatory thinking. I love the idea of getting ahead of the problem, and 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 I love the way he tells stories. And they are so um, 
they're just so so well written and they just demonstrate the the the, the idea so well and yeah anatomy of humbug i loved because it just was such a history lesson and oh so many so many Perfect. Well, uh, to be honest, a few of those haven't come out. Madison Avenue Manslaughters has certainly not come up before. Oh, it's brilliant. Um, I'm not even, I don't even think Anatomy of Humbug has. Oh, so, um, no, they're, they're all, all good. And Daniel Pink, actually, this is this is a this is a debut for Daniel Pink. And then the number four is we always dedicate every episode to somebody, and we bestow that honour on our guest. So, would you do the honours? So, I think I would dedicate it to the people who who gave me who saw in me the, the something and gave me an opportunity and i think you know those people would be people like uh, graham warsop one of my, my my creative director partners steve bramovitz matthew bull and they were all creative people who saw a, a like-minded spirit in me and gave me such incredible opportunity so to them i would say thank you and dedicated to them perfect that's wonderful uh, so as a final call to action everyone listening can head over to calltoaction.co we've shared everything uh, discussed in the last hour we might struggle to fit all of bbh's world cup of books in but we'll, <laughs> we'll certainly include drive and anatomy of humbug predatory thinking choice factory or oh, so many thinking fast and slow yes. one or two others i'll make sure we don't we don't lose those how else can our listeners get more Gillian Wrightford? Uh, I'm always on Twitter, always. Uh, <laughs> and I'm on LinkedIn. I have a website, which is uh, adtherapy.coza. I'm around. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we'll include all of the links to um, Ad Therapy, your wonderful isolated talk. They'll all be there on the listing. So, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for giving us creativity is, is a strategic business tool. Thank you for giving us your time and, and all of your smarts, Gillian. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely ch- chatting. And finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the pod. We really value your support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.